You're listening to The Hoof of the Horse, a podcast dedicated to farriery and equine science with Dr. Simon Curtis. This episode of our podcast today is sponsored by Hoof Care Essentials Foundation partner, GE Forge and Tool. I'm in East Berkshire, uh, near the town of Wokingham, and I'm here to talk to Robin May about his life as a farrier. Good morning, Robin. Good morning. Um, Okay, Robin, the obvious first question is, uh, when did you start and how did you get into shoeing horses? I started um, shoeing when I was 16, um, sort of straight from school. I wanted to become a farrier from the age of about 11, 10 or 11, I don't know quite when it was or what actually made me want to go into shoeing. But as far as I can tell, that's the only job I ever wanted to do. And my original idea was to go into the army and become a farrier. Then when it came to 16 and joining up into the army, I thought, I don't really fancy this idea that much. and I ended up going to work in a place called Odium in Hampshire. Stayed there for about a year and a half trying to get an apprenticeship. Got turned down twice. Um, and eventually the registration council phoned me up and said, we've been waiting for you to get in touch with us. We've got a place for you in Leicestershire if you'd like to go. So I went up to Leicestershire to a guy called Stuart Taylor. Was up there for about five years. Probably the best move I thing I ever did. He gave me a lot of opportunities, opened my eyes to a lot of things that I would probably not have seen had I been in a different part of the country or under a, a different regime. And um, got me away from home, made me grow up a bit, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. And of course, for those that that don't know, um, uh, that's the heart of hunting country, isn't it? It is. It's a it's a lovely lovely county. They say it was a cream of the hunting country because of the amount of grassland that was up there, and you could jump from grass field to grass field, where it's not always possible in, in other parts of the country. And yeah, I I liked it up there. I didn't really follow the riding quite as much up there because I was more into my. Pentathlon. I used to do pony club tetrathlon and pentathlon, and I was more focused on that throughout my apprenticeship. And the events in um, what events do you pentathlon do? Pentathlon is running. Uh, you have to do a four thousand meter run, a three hundred meter swim, shooting used to be a pistol live, shooting, live two two pistol shooting. Yeah. Um, fencing, fencing with an epee, which is a targets the whole of the body. And riding, you would ride a, uh, a horse from a pool. You'd get 20 minutes to warm it up and go around a, a course of show jumps. Yeah. I was an international for eight years or so. So you, the, you represented uh, England? Yeah, Olympic shortlist for, for one or two Olympics. Never went to an Olympics, but um, still enjoyed it. Um, See, I, I learned things about... You know, I've known you a long time, yeah. Robin, and I didn't know that. That was so just that's... one thing I, I, I started doing. Came out of Pony Club. Yeah. Pony Club introduced tetrathlon to, to encourage boys into the Pony Club to get them doing things. And I think I was possibly a little bit wayward at, at school. And my parents 
got me into thought, what can we do to inspire Robin? And I think looking back at it with hindsight, that's what they got me into. Well, it and, it and it focused wise parents focused my life. Yeah, which is good. No, that's marvellous. And um, and of course you carried on with hunting. I've seen some lovely pictures yep. in your house of you as the huntmaster. So what is the role of a huntmaster? Well, I was huntsman, which okay. is I used to control the hounds, put the hounds we we drag hunt, so I'd put the hounds onto the scent and then I'd be lucky enough to be the first one round all the jumps and you'd get the best ground, you'd see the hounds working and just be in in charge of the front of the field. Then behind you you'd have the field master. Yeah. who would control all the people in the field. Can't always do it because if some, very often I'd have someone up beside me being run away with. <laughs> it's no good shouting at them. Like, they're out of control. They can't stop. And their horse has just taken off. And I just used to look to the side of me and think, oh, well, I'll just say, well, as long as you don't run the hounds over, you're fine. Just stay up with me. You'll enjoy it. And I know you've done team games as well. Yeah, team chasing. Yeah. Um, that was um, where a team of four of you ride around a cross-country course and the idea just get back as fast as you can. And do all four count or is it the first three? First home? three count. I thought because because you often you usually you can lose one. Lose, lose one. You're unlucky if you lose two, but sometimes you lose, you lose two. It used to be, I can remember watching it when it first started, and they used to have loads of people going around a, a, a team chase at Hickstead, and it used to be televised on World of Sport. And I can remember watching it, and there used to be army teams, and they used to, it was carnage. They'd be falling off left, right, and centre. Yeah. All these these people, and you get different hunt teams in it. So you've enjoyed other types of competitions as well, because you were a competition farrier, and uh, I think you had to struggle to get in the England team, but you made it, didn't you? I've got my, my boss, Stuart Taylor, to thank for that, for introducing me to competition farriery and giving me the opportunity and the experience. And I was competing as an apprentice and then working with Stuart. And then I met my sort of good friend, Tony Wilson, who we used to sort of compete together, doing lots of things. And then Carl Betterson phoned me up one day and said how do you fancy working together and trying to get on the England team so we worked together for a couple of years going up to the team trials trying to get into the team and eventually we got into the team and then we practiced and practiced and then 10 days before the competition I had a tummy ache and I went out to the pitches that evening and I couldn't get comfortable and it just got worse and worse all throughout the day and then and eventually they took me into hospital and the next day whipped my appendix out and I thought shoot I'm not going to be able to be in the team I'm not going to be fixed that quick I've got a scar from here to here now you have your appendix out and it's like yeah. a scratch yeah because they use an autoscope or whatever yeah. yeah and so I lost my place on the team but thankfully the next year I got in and competed with a guy called Steve Belasco who did an absolutely fantastic job. Then I got in the, the following year with Tony Wilson. And this was up at Stonely, was this it? This was up at Stonely on the bank, August bank holiday. Yeah, it always used to be then, yeah. Huge, great competition. And then the following year, I got in and was in the team with Mark Priest. Yeah. 
enjoyed working with all of them. It's just so intense and, um, and you learnt a lot and great camaraderie. Once the competition's over with, with everybody, the England, the Welsh, the Scots, I was with Jim Balfour just two weeks ago and we were just sort of reminiscing about things. Lovely. And it, it's not just what you do, it's speaking to people and just general conversation. You pick things up. Yeah. And I know you've, you've carried on an interest because your son, who's in his last year of apprenticeship, uh, you went with him to Ireland recently. He was on the England apprentice team. And your godson was on the, the full England team, wasn't he? Yes, yeah. I've had a few, few apprentices now that have gone on and, and wanted to sort of try and get on to do a bit of the competitions and things. I've not tried to encourage them. And I've not tried to discourage them. I've not tried to push them into it. But if they want to do it, I've kind of tried to encourage them a bit and give them a, a bit of help. And luckily, say four of them now have gone on to the, the England team, done very well. And two weeks ago, we went out to Northern Ireland to watch the, the England team. Um, I had a wonderful weekend. Oliver, my son was on the apprentice team and George, my godson, who was also my, my apprentice, went on and was in the England, sort of the, the, the qualified team. Yeah. And the boys left and they drove up to Spud Allison's house, picked Spud's son up, Henry, who, um, when I was in the England team, Spud was in the England team. And so Spud went out to Ireland, Spud and his wife went out to Ireland. I went out um, with Oliver's mum, and we well, had a... Ireland's always a good place for a reunion and a party, isn't lovely. it? Lovely. <laughs> it wasn't... How they organised the weather, I don't know, because it's always... I've always thought Ireland has been a bit dreek. Yeah. But it was lovely weather. The people were, were fantastic. The hotel staff, the people in the forge, it was organised. I'm sure there were hiccups there with the organisation, but we didn't see them. And we just had a wonderful time. Of course, it helps that the team did well, but um, we we had a lovely time. Yeah. And, well, uh, I'm sure your advice was was uh, really priceless because you've you've seen it and done it all before in the competition line. Now we're actually at your your farm and forge, and I've had a wander around and I've taken a few pictures, and um, I have not seen so much concave bar stock. I think anywhere. I would have to say some of it's a bit rusty and some of it even has nettles growing through it. You're obviously a collector of things. You find it very difficult to throw things out. How did you come to get that much bar stock? Well, when I used to phone up the, the rolling mills, I just used to say, look, I'll have everything you've got because they were always a little bit reluctant to sell direct to farriers. Yeah. So I just used to say, look, I'll have everything you've got. I don't want to just get have 25 kilograms of this and two and half a ton of that. So I just used to get a lorry load. And it was fine during uh, when I was we, we were making loads of shoes. We'd get through it. But now we, we've got the stuff left that, you know, the seven, eight behalf. Yeah. That you don't use so much. Five, eight, five, sixteen. That, we don't use that much five, eight, No, five, well, I, I said to you that. So, you know, when I did my apprenticeship, that was 90% yeah. of the shoes we made in racing. I wish I'd have known you'd got all yeah. this up there. When I bought by sort of like a ton and a half of five yeah. eight five sixteen, and you only use polo ponies. Yeah, well, well, I'm putting it on polo ponies now. Yeah, just 
just to try and get rid of it, you know. It's, uh, I, I think I've probably, I've still got a few years left shoeing, but I don't know whether I've got enough apprentices left to make it all up, because I don't fancy making all that, making no. all those shoes. Well, you made a pair of shoes this morning. Yeah. Um, I did notice you were looking around for the bench rasp. Yes, so yes. I thought... <laughs> As I said to you, I don't, the boys always like the fires. I don't yeah. like the fires. I just say, right, let's get this done and let's get that done. And then everything's gone to, to Windsor at the moment. So um, Voices, all the yeah, other... Yeah, I know there's all a the big, other, big demonstration. All the, the big other ambles. Show there, on there. There's usually... Well, there's, there's a whole pile of ambles, but the other two ambles from the other two fires, yeah. they, they've gone to Windsor. Well, the other thing that you've got a great collection of is that all your old shoes are put in one pile, aren't they? And that is the biggest pile of shoes. And when this podcast comes out, I'm going to make sure to put a picture of that pile because you reluctantly uh, climbed to the top for yeah. me, but I got a picture of it at the top. And I'll tell you what, I think I'd have got vertigo. So, so we'll put a picture of them out with you on the top. Thankfully, I'm not scared of heights. Um, not initially, anyway, but once you get up there and you've been up there for like a while, you think, oh, it'd be safer down on the ground. Yeah, but, um, well, it is yeah. stepped, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah, well, I don't mean it's got steps. Yeah. I mean you've built it in. Oh, we've built so you can steps around there so we can get to the top because ladders are not acceptable anymore in a health and safety environment. So I thought I'm not going to put scaffolding around this. So I thought we'll build steps into the horseshoe pile and we can carry the shoes up to the top. So how many years have you been building that pile? Yes, you know, there's 30 years worth of all yeah. or Approaching 40 years of, of horseshoes, horseshoes there. Yeah. yeah. And at times, I know now there's you and two apprentices, isn't there? But there, at times there was five or more There used people. to be three or four apprentices and myself busy. So you were uh, generating yeah, a lot yeah, of uh, Yeah. Of now there's, there's four of us. Sorry, there's, there's three of us now. And it's the shoe pile isn't getting as big anymore. We tend to do a lot of refits now. Horses don't wear shoes no. out anymore, not like they used to. No, I, know. I, mean, I don't know what it's like. In no, it's whether, the same, whether, it's whether the same thing. And, you, you know, I think people but, um, that... Farriers, and, you know, farriers from all around the world listen to this podcast, but in the UK, you used to see horses on the roads every day, didn't you? Yeah. Everybody mm. slowed up to them. Used to it's do a road rarity work. now, yeah. isn't it? So, so they, just like most of the rest of the world, they, they come out of the barn or stables, and they sometimes go straight on the menage, and that's it. And then straight back. They never. They never most they see is a bit of concrete outside yeah. their stable. So uh, the only time you put new shoes on is when you've worn the nail holes out. I've got some polo ponies that have the same shoes on throughout the season. Yeah. So refitted about five or six times. Yeah. Which is ridiculous. Yeah, for us, refits were a rarity and now they're common. Yeah. I would say that the, the good thing about... Uh, the old racing yards in Newmarket, they can't move them, so they still have to go half a mile or a mile to get to the heath. Yeah. So they get through the yeah. shoes by walking around that. That isn't going to change, but but they have special walkways. But it's certainly true you don't see horses on the roads like you used to. Not now. No. There we are. At least they still have to be refitted every five or six and weeks. And they still have to have the shoes on <clears> to do the job that they want to do. Yeah, so that that's still all right. Now, um, you've actually taken on a role in the last couple of years. I'm not sure how long you've been on the council, but you're on the Farriers Registration Council, aren't you? Yeah, job I've enjoyed. It's, it's now more of a, a regulatory role. Since um, the investigation and disciplinary committees have been removed from the council and they're now 
run as a separate independently. Um, I used to really enjoy the investigating committee, just reading through the case files of what's happened. And um, I'd have to say I'm as guilty of that because I, I was on the council on and off for ten years, and I never went on the disciplinary. I was on the investigation. Investigate. That's so the one I used, to be on. Yeah, had the had the letters of complaint come in, and uh, you know we we would always try and deal with them fairly. Every I think it, it's still the same. And uh, and I remember that farriers often say, why why should we have other people who aren't farriers on the council? But it always gave strength because the horse owners, if the case was dismissed, they would say it's a whitewash. Yeah. And we were able to say, but look, there was a vet on this body, there was a member of the RSPCA. It was yeah, a, and Scottish Enterprise. Yeah, Enterprise. Not, not just farriers. So yeah, it, it wasn't, should we say, whitewashing farriers. But... Um, Yes, it is interesting. Um, sometimes it can be, uh, what would we say, a bit disappointing the way some of our colleagues act. At other times, some of the complaints are just nonsensical. Yeah, but if there you is... see all sides. If, you, if there is a complaint made, it has to be looked into. Yeah. And uh, whether it's nonsensical or not. Yeah, of course. Just with the paper trail and just following the evidence that you've got in front of yourself and with a bit of common sense, you can work out how the particular problems come around. Most of it is lack of communication, really. And once somebody's got their blood up and they think, well, he's hit my horse or he's said a nasty word, with a bit of communication, most of it can be sorted out. Sometimes it gets beyond that. And I found that that farriers always try to put things right. You know, we're never in trouble. In other words, if you've done something wrong, apologise early. There's a lame horse, get back to it quickly. Don't say it wasn't me, I'm not coming. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, well, lot, yeah. lots of ways that um, barriers uh, can make life easier for themselves. And, and most do. It's only the occasional. I mean, when you think how many farriers in the UK, 3,000, I think we used to average somewhere around 20 complaints a year. Yeah. That's not a lot. Not really, no. no. I think it, there are probably slightly more complaints now. Not all of them get investigated. I think the registrar was saying once people realise that there's not a financial gain for the person that's complaining, <laughs> the, case, the case gets dropped. Yeah. You know, they think this farrier's done this or he's been late or not turned up. I want compensating. We live in that kind of society now where it is a bit more litigious. Yeah. But getting back to the council's role now, we, we just sort of oversee the day to day running of the business, kind of rubber stamp the, um, hopefully the, the new apprenticeship system that's coming through or coming online, hopefully for this coming year's intake, um, just rubber stamp day-to-day business. No more investigation work and or disciplinary Take work. A, you're taking all the fun out of it. It is. Uh, well, for me, that's <laughs> that used to be the most fun aspect of, of the job. So you mentioned... Um, uh, the, the, the new apprenticeship, but it's not really changed much, has it? It's 90% the same. But the thing I'd like to ask you, because you've had lots of apprentices and now you, you're seeing that side of it, do you think the current system of apprenticeship over four years, 23 weeks at college, is that fixed forever? Is that always going to be that way? I would hope it would be similarly so for the next few years. You can learn what to do in this job really quite quickly you just can't learn how to do it it takes a while to pick up those skills I think you can learn enough theory 
in a, I don't say a relatively short period of time, but if you went to college for, for six months, you'd probably be able to learn all your theory in that six month period, but you'd come out and you wouldn't have the skills and you can't just throw an apprentice into the job and expect them to learn how to trim, nail on, and clench up all at once. They have to learn, get the dexterity with the tools and learn how to, to work and, and function. And when you're trying to run a business, you have to let them progress in stages so you then don't end up losing your business. No, exactly. exactly. You can't risk them. You, you have to let them. Yeah. Some will pick things up really quickly. Some it will take a, a little bit longer and you just have to work at, at their speed and the speed that your business dictates. So I would hope it would stay around about the three or four year mark because we've got a good apprenticeship system in this country that's worked for, for many years. And I think if it's not broke, why try and fix it? It just needs tinkering with for modern day experiences and technical difficulties that, that you have and just to learn new techniques. Okay, well, we've covered quite a bit on the, on the council, and um, I usually stay away from that yeah, politics yeah, in these. Yeah, but anyway, yeah. it was an opportunity because you're currently yeah. a member just to talk to you about things. Now, at this point, I usually ask the deep philosophical question. In other words, uh, the question is what's the most important thing you've learned in your life? My goodness. It's all right, you've only got 10 minutes yeah, to yeah. answer this. Not thing. to get too upset about things, you know? You will have ups and downs in your life yeah don't let the downs get you too far down never get too elated because you won't be up there forever I'm, I'm i'm trying to think and i'm never good at remembering poems but kipling's those two imposters victory right. and defeat that's uh, what yeah, yeah treat them yeah. both the same yes yeah and uh, yeah so that's 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 great advice robin um it's been fantastic speaking to you i've learned as i've probably known you 30 years and we bumped into each other on and off during I'm that time before that actually no, probably is. i'm trying not to make myself sound so old um and i i learned some things to, today about you that i didn't know one thing is uh, you're definitely not a quitter you know the story about getting in the england team the other thing is is that you are definitely a collector you don't like to throw things away i've been you know here at your house and your forge and uh, there are lots of animals. There were six sledgehammers together. I think I don't know whether they're breeding there in your forge, but they never know. You can't trust this. What so, happens in the dark, you never know oh. about. <laughs> so I, 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 I learned that about you, and I've had a wonderful time. Um, and uh, taken plenty of photographs of you as well. So uh, as I say, we'll put a couple of those out of the podcast. And uh, I can only thank you again for for doing this podcast. Well, Thanks, Robin. Thank you, Tom. Thank you. Pleasure. We'd like to thank Hoofcare Essentials Foundation and their partners for sponsoring this episode. You can find out more information at hoofcareessentials.com. You can follow more of Simon's work on Instagram and Facebook at Dr. Simon Curtis. To get in contact, please email thehoofofthehorse at gmail.com and for everything else, go to drsimoncurtis.com. Thanks for listening.